All right, what is up? Welcome back, everybody. We are on episode 29. I'm sitting across from Alex Montoya. And Alex, as with every episode, I want to start by saying thank you for carving out the time to come be with us today. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. We, uh, we, we quick rehashed here. It's been a few years since I spoke to you, and it was at a charity dinner together. Um, and I did do a lot of homework on you. Um, but I, I, we haven't spoken a long time, so I'm really excited to get caught up on everything that you're involved in. I told you before, we, I watched your TEDx, so I kind of have a, a bird's eye view. But um, I'm excited to hear everything you, uh, you've built or are building. Um, and in true in the weeds fashion, love going back to the starting line. Um, you know, I, I did pick apart a, f a few notes that you were born in Colombia, right. which is really interesting. We haven't had too many people come on the show that were born outside the U United States. Okay. So I thought it'd be a great um, starting point sure. to, to speak on that and, and, and I guess um, migrating over to the United States and, and, and how that worked as a young as a young child. I think that's a really interesting jump off point. Sure. Well, um, thank you again uh, for having me. Uh, yeah, my journey really began um, when I was born in Medellin, Colombia, um, and really began in a couple different ways. Um, when I was born, I had a, a birth defect that led me to be born missing both of my arms and my right leg. Mm. And at the time, um, when I was born, it was 1974, I'm, I'm 46 now, uh, in the mid 70s, when someone was born with a disability, uh, a lot of countries didn't really know um, how to really provide the services needed for mm. someone. Um, and that was the case in Colombia uh, at the time. And so uh, my family made the decision that it would be better for my future uh, to be able to move to the US. Uh, I already had uh, family here uh, in California and um, my mother's uh, sister uh, lived here. And so uh, it was decided that uh, I would get the opportunity to, uh, to move here. Uh, so this happened when I was four. Mm. Uh, when I was four years old, I was able to move to the US and be able to uh, go to school and receive uh, prosthetics that I otherwise would not have been able to uh, do uh, in Colombia at the time. So you, up until four, while you're in Colombia, you never you didn't have prosthetics at all. Correct. It was really a matter of just kind of um, getting around the best way possible. Uh, a lot of times I would um, just scooch on the ground yeah. or my family would help carry me. Uh, I have uh, one good leg, my left leg, um, and I don't, I'm missing both of my arms and my right leg. Um, so I did not have prosthetics uh, those first uh, four years. Um, and, and on the one hand, it was, it was a great sacrifice for my family family to you know take care of me even more than you would take care of your average baby or toddler uh, but on the on the other hand knowing that uh, things would soon change uh, with coming to the US uh, that provided some great hope as well mm. do you do you recall like <clears throat> vividly a lot of your childhood memories or like growing up because I'm sure it was a uh, it was a much different road than most than most kids do you recall a lot of those early early years I do I, I, I only recall a little bit from Colombia, um, primarily, um, it actually has always uh, stayed with me, um, knowing that um, uh, people would always uh, do a double take and look mm. and, and, and point. Um, I can remember uh, images of that and memories of that uh, really from probably age two or three. Uh, but I remember more from the US. Mm. Uh, arrived to the United States when I was four years old, uh, arrived to San Diego. Um, and even though I don't quite recall um, uh, 
uh, my my very first few days or, or, or first few months in the U.S. It, it didn't take long. Um, so f- I guess you could say from from about age five on, um, I very vividly remember uh, you know what it was like, and uh, I remember receiving my first pair of prosthetics mm. <coughs> through the uh, Shriners Hospitals okay. um, and going through therapy to learn how to use them um, and learning that uh, all of a sudden um, all the things that I couldn't do before in terms of moving around and holding things and grabbing things, I could now do. And that always gave me a really, a really interesting uh, perspective um, that, that, that I had back then uh, that I didn't realize, which was most people were looking at me and they were, you know, kind of pointing at me or whispering and saying, mm. oh, my gosh, look at that little boy. He's missing his arms or mm. he has prosthetic arms. He has a robotic leg. I'm thinking to myself, this is great. Mm. Like, I actually am able <laughs> yeah, yeah. to walk now and I'm actually able to you know, hold things and grab food and grab toys and grab whatever I had to grab. And it just kind of shows, um, you know, your perspective on things determines everything. Whatever your perspective is on life and on your on your challenges determines absolutely everything about it. I couldn't agree more. And I, I actually have a quote saved, but I'm going to, in the end, there was a quote that you said that I really gravitated towards okay. from, from one of your TEDx's. Okay. Um, but was was there a particular reason why, uh, why San Diego, why you made it to San Diego? So my uh, uncle uh, was in the uh, United States Marine Corps. Okay. Uh, and his wife, my aunt, uh, my aunt is my mother's sister. Um, they were uh, actually uh, being stationed down here from Northern California, and it was going to be the final stop of my uncle's career. Mm. Um, they had three kids of their own, and um, uh, four kids, I should say, four kids of their own. And um, they uh, had, you know, accepted that San Diego was going to be the the final stop in my uncle's uh, Marine Corps career. And when they came, they fell in love with it. They Mm. said, uh, it's good that this is the final stop because this is where we're staying. Yeah. yeah. And uh, not a bad place for for me to land either. Yeah, totally. So I guess I have two questions because you talked about a really specific story uh, being on the playground uh, in your TEDx. But, but I think just pulling apart what you said uh, is I have a couple, I have young nieces. And whenever I visit them in Arizona, I, I always ask those, uh, the questions of treatment at school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I know bullying's a thing, but I, I feel like from what you're describing, it, it probably was a little more heightened, what, sure. what you dealt with. Sure. How, how was it, you know, just the, the normal day-to-day with, with uh, elementary school on up? Sure. First of all, when I first arrived in San Diego, if you had a disability, you couldn't go to school um, with with non-disabled kids. Mm-hmm. You were put in a school uh, only with other disabled kids. And that was very confusing to me because I was used to uh, running around and playing in my neighborhood with everyone. Mm-hmm. And so it, it didn't make sense that on the weekends and in the summer, uh, I, would, I would play with friends and have a great time with them and just be a kid. And then come Monday morning, um, we were separated in the two separate schools. Uh, this was in the Claremont area of San Diego. Uh, I was in uh, Schweitzer Elementary, and all my friends were in Lindbergh Elementary. Mm. Schweitzer was for the disabled kids only. 
and Lindbergh was for all of the able-bodied kids, and they were it was separated by a fence. And so it didn't make sense to me as to why come Monday I was in this place, they were in that place. Yeah. We had a fence in between us, um, and then we'd you know get together again after school and and be able to to play with one another. Um, when I questioned that, um, the teachers and administrators at my school said, you know, you're onto something. There really isn't a reason that this is very fair, is it? And that was actually my first uh, foray into activism without knowing mm. it, um, because I really uh, raised my voice and, and, and made sure that we uh, uh, voiced our opinion uh, to the teachers, to the staff, to even to the school district, uh, that, that we just wanted to be with our friends and wanted more of an equal footing. Uh, at the same time, uh, the kids on the other side of the fence were saying the same things, mm. and uh, they eventually try a pilot program which was the very first type in san diego history at all um to allow for kids with disabilities to be integrated into regular curriculum classes over at Lindbergh. uh this is when i was in the first grade uh, but it was really interesting because the kids that i had that 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 i knew that were friends of mine already they just treated me like a regular pal uh, mm-hmm. you know they they teased me and joked with me, but always in a, in a loving, cool way. They helped me out whenever possible. Um, but I noticed that any kids that weren't within my classroom um, were the ones that chose a different route. Uh, they chose to right away focus on the fact that I had prosthetics or, or as they called, as they called them, robot arms and a robot leg. Uh, and they called me names and they, and they, uh, you know, made jokes and, and it wasn't in a loving way. It was definitely making sure, yeah. fun, making fun of me. Um, but it showed me that, um, that those that, that are going to tease you or those that are going to belittle you are really the ones that don't know you very well. Mm-hmm. And the ones that defend you are the ones that do know you. Um, and the kids that tease you tend to, to back back down when they're getting some pushback from mm-hmm. those other friends. So that was a life lesson as well uh, to kind of see who was doing the teasing, who was doing the supporting, and who was doing the, the defending yeah, um, yeah. and, and uh, you know allowing me to just feel like a normal kid. Do you, do you think it's safe to say, <clears throat> because I've, I've changed my approach to anybody who I feel like is disagreeing with me or argumentative or even combative, is I've come to realize most of the time where they're coming from is they just don't understand. Right. Or vice versa. If I disagree with you <clears throat> is I just don't understand. So I've, I've resorted now to, I just start asking a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I do it to my nieces, my nieces mm-hmm. too, to keep using them as an example, but even to in business or my friendships or anyone and I always now preface it because I'm like hey I'm gonna probably sound a little bit uh, confrontational because I'm asking you a bunch of questions feels like we're at the inv- investigators table right um, but I'm just trying to figure it out and and usually when I get to the end of my questions and they ultimately end up asking questions we understand each other yeah you know yeah. versus when someone looks at you they, they don't know your first and last name or anything about your story right. they make assumptions off of what they sure. know which they don't know anything sure sure you know and and, and, I, and I wish now uh, especially with how crazy emotions and you talk about activism, like activism at an all time high with everything going on right now. If people would just realize we just don't understand each other, maybe is the root problem, right? Right. Yeah. I, I really believe that people are not understanding each other and they're not taking the time to just simply ask the other person, why do you feel this way? Um, you know, what is your thoughts on this? What is your opinion on this? 
what is your experience? Mm-hmm. We're all made up of our experiences um, and our hopes and ambitions. I mean, that's what defines all of us. Totally. And instead, you know, we've reached a point where everyone has become very tribal and said, this is who I am. This is the group that I'm a part of. And if you are not in alignment with my group, you're the enemy. Mm-hmm. Instead of saying, number one, well, why do you feel the way you do? And number two, will you at least listen to my experiences and maybe that'll change. Totally. And I think what you're talking about uh, is so good and so important because you're essentially saying, uh, okay, educate me on on any number of things. Let me ask a bunch of questions to get your perspective out that really isn't being readily made available. Yeah, and, and what it does too without them knowing is it forces them to explain themselves. Right. And a lot of times this works a lot with kids. And it's not like I'm p- pulling off trickery here. <laughs> like, you should do the same to me. If I come yeah. up with something that seems just totally outlandish, force me to explain myself. Right. And when I do that with, I have a 15-year-old niece, and they're all over the place. You know, okay. teenage girl. When I sit her down and I just ask her questions versus a, a normal, like my sister a lot of times will just fly off the rocker. I'm like, yeah. no, ask her where it's coming from. Yeah. She'll solve the problem on her own. And yeah. that, that applies to us too. Yeah. It's like, if you force people to explain, hey, you just criticized me for my robot arms. Right, right. Explain to me why. You right, know, versus like right. the, the first initial reaction is just to get pissed off. Right. You know, and I'm sure as a kid, you're not having those thoughts. You, you probably you probably pulled the pissed off button oh, yeah. several times. Oh, yeah. You know, until you realize, okay, well, this is not going to get me anywhere yeah. or them anywhere. Yeah. Right? It was really interesting because, um, so my aunt and uncle that raised me, um, my aunt, again, being my mother's sister, she was also from Columbia. And my uncle, uh, in addition to being a Marine, uh, was Irish, mm. uh, Irish American. Uh, <laughs> so they're both pretty hot blooded. Yeah, and, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, I, I like to say that even though I, they weren't my biological parents, they very much became a second set of parents to me. And I definitely, uh, acquired a good number of their traits. Um, and you're right. I mean, they're, they're, um, a lot of the, the, their instincts and defensiveness that they would have just kind of as, as personality traits rubbed off on me to where, uh, but also, you know, combined with, they also wanted to emphasize, don't back down, you know, don't, yeah. don't um, be afraid of anyone. You belong in that school as much as anyone else and don't operate in fear as well. And because of that, a lot of times when you would get teased and you'd get bullied, your automatic, you know, reaction would be to kind of, you know, put up your dukes and say, you know, uh, you know, what are you talking about? You know, and, 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 and be very defensive. Um, but all it took was for uh, one schoolyard fight mm-hmm. uh, for for them to to sit to sit me down and say, OK, look, we we taught you to protect yourself and defend yourself and stand up for yourself. And that's good. Mm-hmm. But you also need to realize that your role here is to be a peacemaker and to be an educator. Mm-hmm. And your role here, which is exactly what you talked about, is to open that dialogue mm-hmm. and to understand that any kids that, that come across you um, haven't seen this ever before. They haven't seen someone with arms like yours. They haven't seen someone yeah. with a leg like yours. Taking a little further, the majority of them probably haven't seen someone in a wheelchair or crutches or someone who's blind, that sort of thing. And that was kind of how they wanted me to focus on the big picture. They said, you know, educate them on on who you are and what it takes to be you every day. And then open that 
have that be the open door so that they ask questions for someone else that has a disability. Um, so it was drilled into me pretty early on that I was to be that that facilitator uh, and that peacemaker and really um, kind of take uh, the biggest thing that was that was um, uh, operating, which was fear, mm -hmm. and turn that into dialogue and eventual understanding and friendship. Yeah, definitely. So tell me, because everything you said, I can only imagine it being told to a child. It's a, that's a lot to receive. It's a lot. It's a lot to receive and also to make that your mission statement. Right. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really mature thing to do. Sure. Um, but the, the first time when you asked the question about why are there separate yards, separate schools, was it coming from a place of, was it, was it from a place of anger? Or was it a place of confusion, like just general confusion? Um, and then I guess what, what was the result? Because it sounded like, um, it created a permanent difference mm -hmm. in the school district. Right. It was, it, it really came from a place of confusion, but also just very um, um, childlike and innocent uh, desire to play and yeah, have fun. Yeah. Uh, and, and as we often talk about, you know, whenever you really look at how um, dumb uh, issues of racism or prejudice or anything else is, all you have to do is look at kids. You know, kids don't see color and mm -hmm. kids don't see difference. Kids just see one another and the fact that they want to have fun with one another. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to have fun with my friends who clearly didn't look like me. They wanted to have fun with, with me, even though I didn't look like them. It was just all about we wanted to play and have a good time and be kids. Mm -hmm. um, the fence that was uh, dividing the two schools uh, was considered a, a permanent um, uh, marker, but we had such a successful uh, first year of our pilot program where, where we mainstreamed students over to Lindbergh that um, initially the uh, teachers over at uh, Lindbergh Elementary were pretty resistant to the idea of bringing kids with disabilities over. Uh, they said, you know, our classes are already pretty overcrowded. There's going to be liability. Am mm -hmm. I going to have to, uh, you know, provide uh, training for these kids that I'm just not trained myself to give? There was a lot of resistance. By the end of that first year, there ended up being a waiting list of teachers that wanted in. Oh, wow. Because they saw that the understanding began. They saw that by having kids with disabilities in their classroom, that that even um, if there was just one disabled kid in the classroom, the class tended to rally around yeah, that kid. Yeah. And that was certainly my experience as well. Um, kids, because that's just their natural uh, nature, <clears throat> they would offer help. They would offer assistance. They would ask questions. Um, they would make sure that you felt valued. And once they had their curiosities uh, satisfied, they wanted to just treat you as a peer and have fun with you. Totally. Um, so what happened was a pipeline was established to continue to bring more students um, over to Lindbergh, uh, but also <clears throat> to bring um, um, students from Lindbergh over to Schweitzer uh, for volunteerism and to expose them to even more kids with disabilities. Mm. Uh, a program was established where they would go over one day a week uh, and spend time on that campus and there was so much exchange uh, and so much reciprocity between the two campuses that they eventually tore down the fence and made the two schools into one. No kidding. They merged the two schools into one so that it was Lindbergh Schweitzer Elementary. Um, this was in the very early 80s, and that actually is what um, led uh, other campuses to say, okay, we need to implement similar programs, and that is what allowed uh, for disabled kids to be integrated into regular education in San Diego. So is it safe to say you're kind of a pioneer? 
I, I, I'd like to think so. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I never really thought of myself in that way. Uh, I know we're, we're, we're fast forwarding a little bit, but uh, it wasn't until 2013 uh, when I was uh, invited uh, to join the um, San Diego Unified School District Hall of Fame. Mm. And, and my immediate reaction was, well, why? <laughs> and they said, because you pioneered the efforts no to, to have our, to have our uh, campuses uh, integrated. Uh, and when they told me that, I was um, uh, extremely honored and extremely humbled uh, to know that we had uh, that sort of lasting effect uh, and that they were going to give me an award that obviously was, uh, was a lasting legacy, but that the more important lasting legacy was what it did for the campuses. Oh, totally. <clears throat> So you are a pioneer. All right, hit the nail on the head. Yeah, you hit it. So I do have to bring up, because I wanted to, to keep the ball rolling in your academic career. I have a business partner who is a devout Notre Dame fan. Okay. And I know that's where the road took you, right? Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me about that. Well, I figured um, that there was a realization early on that um, I was in this country for a purpose and that I had the opportunity to do something really special. It, it, it didn't take very long for, for the light to click on that I had an opportunity that was really a one in a million opportunity. Mm. And I needed to really make it special. Um, and, you know, whether I was learning how to uh, climb the monkey bars with kids on the playground in grade school to learning how to navigate uh, junior high and high school as someone wearing prosthetics. Um, I knew my story was very different. I knew my story was very special. Um, I knew that I could educate a lot of, a lot of people uh, as to uh, what it's like to live with a disability in general. And so um, I really wanted to go to uh, a school that w was really special um, and would really provide a, a special experience uh, uh, for me. Uh, and so really ever since uh, eighth grade, uh, I became interested in University of Notre Dame. Um, I recognized that it was a place that had um, uh, high academics and high academic uh, uh, reputation. Uh, I also really wanted to have the college experience of Ivy on the walls mm. and you know brick buildings and just kind of your your classic uh, Norman Rockwell type scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it just seemed to fit uh, everything that 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 I envisioned uh, college life uh, being. Uh, so I did my research, which in those days uh, wasn't anything like, um, you know, going on a website and taking interactive tours. I mean, all we had was a brochure yeah. and, a v and a video you'd pop into the VHS machine, you yeah, know, to, yeah. to teach you about the campus. <laughs> um, but I recognized that, that it was the kind of place that I wanted to go to. The other thing, the other aspect of that was um, I knew that Notre Dame was located um, in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, I knew that it was a place that really reverenced faith. And I'm a man of faith, and I knew that that was going to be uh, very important to my value system. Um, but also being in a part of the country, in the state of Indiana, uh, that was very cold and mm. had a lot of rough weather um, and was just a, a very, very old uh, university, I knew that, that was going to be a challenge for me, mm. and I wanted to take on that challenge. Um, I wanted to go someplace that was going to uh, really test my character um, and, again, be a, be a place where I could also educate them. Yeah, definitely. So was it all everything you envisioned? It was as hard as I imagined. <laughs> um, was there one thing that was the hardest? Well, in, in 1990, while I was in high school, 
the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed. Mm. And that is the most important landmark piece of legislation uh, for people with disabilities in this country. It's our civil rights law. Uh, that was in, in 90 when I was a sophomore. Uh, in, by 92, it became federal law. So I arrived to the Notre Dame campus in 1992, um, the, the, the bill had just become a law, and one of the main things it states is that all buildings on education campuses need to be accessible. Mm. When I arrived, I saw that Notre Dame just was not ready. Uh, they were not ready for people like me uh, to attend campus. Um, so, for example, all of the doors were heavy oak doors with round doorknobs, which are very tricky, instead of levers. Um, there weren't very many uh, ramps. Uh, every, every place had stairs. And then um, the most famous uh, building on the Notre Dame campus uh, is the main administration building, which has the Golden Dome mm -hmm. on top of it. Um, and I had a class there uh, on the third floor, and the building had no elevator. And so... Um, very quickly, I saw that I was going to have to make sure that they knew for someone with a prosthetic leg, climbing three flights of stairs is hard. Yeah. For someone in a wheelchair, climbing three flights it's of stairs impossible. Is, is impossible. Yeah. And so I saw that there was going to have to be a high level of education uh, involved. And to their credit, they were completely open to it. Mm -hmm. uh, they knew that, um, I think, I think values-wise, uh, that it was just the right thing to do. Uh, but now there was a civil rights law backing it up. And they actually went through the process of shutting down the building for a year so that they could uh, make all sorts of modifications to it and install an elevator. And um, by the end of my senior year, they had completely renovated it. They had completely um, uh, in installed the, the, the elevator and, and made it a, a modern building. But then they also built a disabled services center because oh, essentially wow. what they were saying was that... Um, you know, you've come to campus and you've educated us, and this is great, but now we need to be more proactive ourselves mm -hmm. in serving uh, students with disabilities, and so we're gonna create a center that does that. And uh, that's the thing that, that I was the most proud of um, because I knew that even after I graduated uh, that that, um, that would be on campus. Uh, it would be my legacy uh, there yeah. uh, within my time. Yeah, so you were kind of their trial run, their first trial run of someone coming on, and maybe there's other people in your class yeah. like with a disability. You know, there were there were some students before me. Um, I, I knew of a young man that uh, he actually was on Notre Dame's hockey team uh, and became paralyzed, uh, and, and he was a wheelchair user. Um, there was a young lady who was blind, um, but they had never, certainly had never had anybody uh, that had multiple prosthetics. And, and one of my main goals uh, in teaching them and educating them wasn't just, you know, uh, I need you to acclimate the campus to me, but to be prepared for anything. Uh, mm -hmm. So after me is going to come somebody completely different mm -hmm. with a whole different set of challenges that you're just not prepared for. Yeah. And so I was really glad that they created this center because that way they could just be able to tack on uh, anything. And the other thing, too. Uh, with with the Americans with Disabilities Act, with the ADA um, coming into law, now you were having education be opened up and you were having sure. uh, services be opened up across the country. So that meant more students were going to be applying to schools all across the land. Mm -hmm. And as our um, uh, knowledge 
expanded uh, towards, uh, let's say, people on the autism spectrum or people with uh, visual disabilities, uh, hearing impairments. Uh, there was going to just always be a new set of needs and a new set of conditions that they had to be ready for. That's interesting. So I, I, I don't, this might throw off the timeline, but you yeah. said something I don't want to gloss over. <clears throat> sure. And I think it might take us in a really cool direction. Is you said you realized your purpose. Yeah. Uh, how old were you when, when you realized your purpose? It's hard to identify an age, um, but I will say this: it was almost kind of a dual, um, a dual realization. Um, I realized that I had a purpose, and I realized that I had a main avenue by which to um, to communicate that purpose, uh, which was writing. Mm. when I was 10 years old. Mm. Um, my aunt uh, came in for a uh, conference uh, with my teacher, and uh, it was just your typical parent-teacher conference, and I'm going to update you on, on how your child uh, is doing. Uh, and I'll never forget um, uh, my teacher very sternly saying, um, you know, the thing with Alex is he will never shut up. And, 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 and my mom, and, and, and I call her my mom because my aunt really became a, a second mom to me. Uh, my mom shot me one of those looks that uh, all, she had to, all she had to do was just give me the look. And I knew I was going to get it when I got home. Uh, I, knew, I knew that I was going to hear all about it. Um, but then the teacher added, but the thing is, uh, when he talks, everyone listens. And when he writes, he writes some for he writes in a way that is at least three or four grade levels above what he's at Interesting. now. And um, my mom was was pretty stunned, and she said, "Really, I I didn't know that." I I I give her and and my dad um, immense credit because one thing that they would always do is they actually uh, recognized early on that one thing that I loved to do was read. And so um, I loved reading and I loved sports. I've always been a huge sports fan. And so ever since I was six years old, they would bring in the sports uh, section of the newspaper every day for me to really read. Really cool. So the reading fostered a love of writing. Uh, the writing really fostered a love of speaking as well. You know, that and just trying to talk to girls in class. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, both of them, uh, you know, both of them said uh, there's something here. Uh, you really need to uh, get him as educated as possible uh, and as trained as possible in writing because this could be a, a real um, avenue for him. Um, a couple years later, I was invited to uh, be a speaker at my ninth grade promotion ceremony. And mm. uh, one of the things that I spoke on was just what it was like being a teenager with a disability. And I was very nervous because I didn't feel like all the kids could necessarily relate. Um, and I knew that it was a very happy occasion anyway, and sure. I, didn't, I didn't want to be the buzzkill uh, yeah. at the graduation. Um, but everyone's reaction was so incredible. Uh, they gave me a standing ovation, and they clapped and cheered uh, that, that those were kind of the two points, the, the parent-teacher conference when I was 10, and then uh, the... Uh, the uh, ninth grade promotion ceremony uh, when I realized, uh, okay, uh, writing and speaking are, are, are the main things that I need to do in life and then educating others on what it's like to be me or what it's like to be someone like me, uh, that is going to be my purpose in life. I was going to say a, a lot of it was done 
really early on as far as like foreshadowing what you were going to be into uh, in your adult years because you said the activism started on the in the elementary school you know with the, the school splits and then writing when you're 10 speaking <coughs> in the ninth grade you're right. kind of having all the building blocks come together right. early on for what was going to happen down the road right. And we're, you're sitting with a couple avid book readers, so okay, we definitely want to dive into great. the books, but is there, sure. you, you have a couple, a couple books. Or. I've written a total of eight. Okay, uh, but, th but that includes, that includes client work uh, that I've done. Gotcha, okay. For myself, I've written five. Oh, okay, I was trying to find the exact number. Yeah. Um, is there is there a general theme <clears throat> or a direction you take with all your books, or you do, do you stick to a certain lane? There are there are always variances, but the core message is you can overcome anything. Nice. You can overcome anything. And that was uh, the foundation of what I learned had to be had to be the core of my belief system. Um, because I saw that um, having prosthetic arms wasn't going to go away mm. and having a prosthetic leg wasn't going to go away. And there were going to be new challenges along the way. And there were also going to be um, new things that I that I wanted to achieve and I wanted to accomplish along the way. Um, and I, I really uh, developed that as my my mantra and my my core uh, message, uh, because it was what what I needed to hear and think and repeat and believe um, every single day growing up. And so I recognized that that was what I wanted to be able to communicate to others. Interesting. Can you give me a, a summarized version of the book writing process from start to finish? Is it a, how grueling it was? <clears throat> I, I know, you know, I've talked to people who have gone through it and from writing it to publishing it to everything. It's, it's a process. It is a, it is a very exhaustive process, both in terms of time and emotions, mm -hmm. because if you're not pouring your full emotions into the book that you're writing, then why are you writing it in the first mm -hmm. place? And um, it's something that I can tell that I tell people. Um, even though I tend to do it faster than most people, uh, just by by virtue of being a natural writer, it should never be rushed. Yeah, it should never be rushed. I believe that every person has a book in them. Mm -hmm. I believe every person has a story. Mm -hmm. I believe every person has something to share. Um, and and every person has minimum one book that they that they should write um and even if they're not necessarily uh, a natural good writer uh that's when they can rely on someone like me that yeah. maybe can help them wordsmith things but in terms of the message and in terms of having a story to share every single person has that the two main starting points that every uh person every writer should know is number one figuring out what is your voice mm. and number two figuring out who is your audience um we all have uh, a voice that is distinct as distinct as our spoken voice or even the words that we choose our lingo uh that we all uh you know individually choose mm -hmm. um and that needs to come across in your writing when 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 people are reading your material they need to know that it's you they need Definitely. to know that it sounds like you and the best way to develop that i always say is to begin with a blog 
to okay. begin by blogging and to um, you know determine uh, is there a main message in my life? Is there a main theme? Is there a main purpose? Or is the purpose just to entertain people and show them kind of the, the mundane things in life can be funny. That's kind of finding your voice. The, <clears throat> the blog finding your helps voice. you find your voice. The blog helps you find your voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also leads to the second part, which is helping to find your audience. Mm-hmm. Because every writer tends to be surprised at what resonates with people mm-hmm. and what people really latch onto. And that's not to say that you should necessarily gear your writing towards being liked necessarily. And that's especially hard in this social media driven mm-hmm. age where we're where we're driven by likes. Yeah. yeah. But figuring out uh, what is it about your writing, whether it's your style or your message or or your overall content, what is it that people are remembering? What is it that they're gravitating to? Um, what is it that they really find value in your writing? And when you figure that out, you figure out who is your audience. So I learned uh, early on that for me, uh, it was people that just needed to have a little bit of hope in terms of overcoming and in terms of um, seeing, okay, here's a guy that has overcome being a triple amputee, even though that's not a challenge I'm facing, I'm facing a similar thing and his message is resonating Mm -hmm. with me. Or if it's someone that also uh, is an immigrant to this country or just has faced any sort of adversity at all, um, they saw such synergy uh, in my message that I recognized that that was going to have to be something that I could continually pump forward. The other thing, too, is that I saw that my most effective uh, means of writing was when I made people laugh. Mm. Um, Anyone that knows me knows that um, I am never... 100% 100% serious all the time. Yeah, yeah. I believe that humor is a weapon. I believe that human humor is a tool, and I use it to diffuse a lot of situations uh, with my disability, and that uh, that people see that they can just you know joke around with me and, and be natural as well, uh, and that, that people are more inclined to listen to you if you make them laugh and feel good as well. So I recognized that part of my writing had to include uh, humorous things just to uh, you know get convey my message uh, the way that I wanted it to once you figure out what is your voice and who is your audience and who you're writing for um, then you can kind of figure out uh, the rest of the process in terms of process I always say um, always make sure that you do an outline first because mm. you need some sort of a guideline. Um, even if that outline completely changes along the way, and I've written books where my outline, uh, let's put it this way, I'll always write it in pencil because mm. I know there's always going to be changes along the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. But you at least have some direction of a roadmap of where you want to go. Um, and then I always say that that one thing that's always kind of been standard and, and really hasn't changed at all is a good book is generally uh, a minimum of 100 pages mm-hmm. and generally an average of 10 pages per chapter. Mm. Um, so if you if you don't have that, then you probably don't have a book. You probably have more of a blog. If you have way more than that, you might be looking at two books. Yeah, or yeah. you might just you know have the need to kind of pare down your theme and really come across a core message. But whenever somebody reads a book, they should walk away saying specifically, 
this is what I learned from this book. Sure. It doesn't need, it doesn't even need to be just one thing. It can be three things. Mm-hmm. It can be four things. But people need to very specifically say, okay, I learned these three things from this book. And and you know, when they when they're able to say that, um, then you know that you have a, a legitimate book on your hands. Um, and you can kind of gear your message towards that. Sure. So I think I know the answer to this question, but <clears throat> do you have more books in you? I hope so, because <laughs> I've, I've kind of bet my future on that. Um, I believe so just because, again, I'm a writer by trade, and so I always need to write. Mm-hmm. And gosh, I mean, even at 46, I am seeing that uh, my experience uh, in my perspective is always evolving and always changing. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly am not a finished product myself. And so, um, you know, at, at the risk of you never want to repeat the same things over and over. Sure. Uh, you want it to be a fresh perspective. I absolutely believe that I have uh, future books in me. And, and, and you know, it's kind of like looking at old photographs of yourself and being like, oh, my gosh, I wore that. Yeah, or, yeah. you know, my hairstyle was, was that. <laughs> you know, I, I hope that uh, I can continually look at my old writings and be like, well, wow, I have really um, uh, evolved. Uh, as a thinker and as a writer uh, to a whole different perspective now. Definitely. So I'm going to jump real quick. Uh, you got into sports. Yes. Working in sports. So I'm a huge sports fan. Absolutely. Yeah. Haven't had anybody on here who's really involved in sports or working in sports. So talk to me. Uh, sure. Talk to me about the experience. Well, as I mentioned, sports has always been a major passion of mine. And I think a main reason was early on I saw that um, I really couldn't play organized team sports it was another lesson from from the early days of my childhood that they carried through um when you when you have prosthetics and when when you are uh, mobility impaired there's just not a whole lot of room for you uh to play team sports Mm. and seeing that early on really taught me okay uh if i want to be involved in sports because clearly I love watching it. I love uh, following it on the radio. I love talking about sports. Um, I, I love all sports. You know, I, I always like to say, if it bounces, I'll watch it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so, so knowing that I wanted to, to be active in that, I knew that I had to take a different route. It's hard enough, even for someone that has two arms and two legs and, and is very athletic, <clears throat> to play, say, collegiate or professional sports sure i mean the odds are so small sure that uh, it's really uh, a lesson that everyone can take uh and that is you know i just kind of had to learn a different route so i saw that um for me it was going to be the route of really becoming a part of a sports organization mm-hmm. and being a part of a team uh, through the organization um side and so um I graduated from Notre Dame in 1996, and um, three years later, I took a part-time job uh, with the San Diego Padres uh, as an usher. And a lot of my friends questioned that decision because they said, why would you earn a Notre Dame degree and take a part-time job that doesn't pay very much? You're on your feet uh, for the entire game. being on your feet is no fun for anyone, but especially someone that only has one leg. So why would you do that, do that to yourself? Um, you know, like, what is the, the end goal here? And I said, this is a step 
towards something else. I recognized that I eventually wanted to be in the Padres front office. Yeah. And um, I um, recognized that taking this job was going to give me access to uh, the Padres staff and let me learn the system and let me learn what it was like to be behind the scenes of a baseball game. Um, and after a few years of uh, working uh, on the Padres staff as an usher, uh, they offered me a position in the front office. Uh, at the time, I was also um, uh, working for the local Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. So I really had the best of both worlds. I had a, a job uh, that related to sports and I had a job that related to uh, business. And the job that the, the full-time job that the Padres offered um, was a position within the organization um, that dealt with uh, marketing to the Latino community oh, and um, accessing that market and being able to do community outreach to the Latino community. Um, and so I knew that, uh, that, that I had the experience within both of, both of those fields and it ended up leading to a career uh, with the Padres, uh, the last of ten years. Hmm. So you, when when did you leave the Padres? I left the Padres in 2015. Okay. Uh, after after almost ten years of uh, community outreach and marketing and creating events that specifically uh, was for the Latino fan base in San Diego and in Mexico, hmm. um, I recognized that um, it was very fun. Uh, but also very tiring. Sure. Uh, you know, burnout is a real issue, and I was starting to kind of get to that point. Um, and I recognized that uh, the other thing that I had really continued to do, which was to write, uh, I produced my, my first two books uh, within my time at the Padres. Oh, cool. uh, Padres were very encouraging. They, they loved the fact that this was going to, you know, help get me out in the community and help their brand as well. And it matched their value system as well. Um, and so what I really considered uh, to be a passion project, uh, writing about my experiences, writing about, uh, you know, being an amputee and writing about overcoming adversity and speaking on it as well. Uh, I decided that uh, after almost 10 years uh, within the front office that it was time to uh, do the motivational speaking and writing full time. Interesting. So you went, you jumped 2015 into that. Jumped 2015 into that. Uh, I, have, I have a very uh, cool story about that, if I may. Um, when I uh, left the organization, I recognized that in order to uh, have this be a business, that I had to go down to the city offices and get my licenses and do mm -hmm. all of the, the things you need to be a small business. And um, uh, walked, in, walked in one day completely not knowing what the heck I was doing. And um, the, uh, the receptionist said, uh, okay, in order to, um, to uh, get started with the first license, uh, it's gonna cost $300. And at the time, I just didn't have $300 handy. And all of a sudden, my, my, my cell phone rings. I think it might've even been like a Blackberry at the time. Uh, <laughs> my, my phone rings and I pick it up and uh, my mind's still kind of in a haze because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I need to come up with 300. Like, what the heck do I do? Is this even something that's meant to be? And um, one of my brothers was on the other end. And I said, hey, I'm in the middle of something. Can I call you back? And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no problem. Actually, I just wanted you to know that uh, I sent you some, some money uh, from a loan that you gave me a few months back. 
Uh, and I said, oh, gosh, okay, I, I forgot about that. Uh, and I said, you know what? How much, did I, how much did I loan you? How much are you sending me? And he says $300. Get the hell out. <laughs> I just, Get the I hell just, out. I looked up and I said, okay, Lord, I'm, oh I'm listening. I'm, I, I just believe that it was meant to be wow. uh, at that point. And I said, I said, okay. Wow. Uh, and so the, the registrar lady came back and she said, uh, Mr. Montoya, have you made your decision? Are you going to purchase this license? And I said, yes. Yes, wow. I am. And that was how A Motivational Communications began. What a story. That's crazy. Is there any is there any speeches you've given in particular that were the most, uh, your flagship? I told you I watched the TEDx. Was, was there anyone that maybe was like the most challenging, the most memorable? Sure. I was very blessed to do the very first TEDx uh, event uh, created in Tijuana. Um, and I have a video of, of that on my website, alexmontoya.org. So I was very proud of that. Uh, but the, the great thing about speaking and writing is, you know, they, they often say that when you read, you get transported to a whole different world. Mm -hmm. You can be transported to any time period, any place on this planet. Um, you can be transported through reading. And I've really taken that spirit and that approach um, to speaking and writing because it has taken me to places that I never imagined I would be in. Um, I've, I've been able to speak at Harvard University. Um, I was able to speak at NASA uh, for a, a scholarship dinner uh, for uh, Hispanic students. Uh, and I was able to speak at the local San Diego office for a Google. Wow. And these are companies that I otherwise would really not have uh, access to or privilege to, uh, but because they were interested in my story and in my core message, uh, they invited me to come speak at their places. And so it's really taking me on a journey that I never imagined. Wow, man, that's incredible. I think I could, I could have a whole conversation just with those speeches. Oh, yeah. But I do want to come full <laughs> circle because you mentioned in the beginning, and I wanted to save so we do keep some sort of timeline. You mentioned the early stages uh, of activism being in, in your future. Sure. How does that play into, I guess now as a, as a grown up, yeah. adult, how does that play into, um, today? It's, it's something that I, that I know that I, uh, strive to continue to do. Um, I would say it's evolved in the sense that when I first came to this country, activism meant, um, trying to show people that someone with a disability uh, belonged in the regular classrooms with mm -hmm. the other kids. As I grew older, it evolved to uh, someone with a disability uh, deserves to have the full access on a campus the same way all the kids do and, and have that campus be accessible. Now, um, it's pretty standard that um, all school districts and all education environments uh, are integrated and by law, all buildings are accessible. Mm. So even though even though um, uh, buildings are not as accessible as they need to be, uh, and there are still buildings 30 years later uh, that are not accessible, more so out in the community, uh, that's, a, that's a level of activism that remains. In general, you can pretty much count on uh, accessibility uh, being an accepted thing and, and, and being something uh, that, again, is protected by law. Where I have seen my activism really grow <clears throat> now is the, um, the aspect of recognizing that there are uh, still not enough people with disabilities uh, in the workplace mm. and that um, as a society, we really tend to 
take disability and people with disabilities and kind of make it an afterthought. Mm. Um, unless you have a loved one or someone very, very close to you that has a disability, no one really thinks about disabled people when it comes to issues of diversity or how they should uh, create their workspace or decisions that they should make for their consumers or even issues of dating or mm -hmm. you know any sort of thing where you try to be as inclusive as possible, we really tend to be the group that gets left out, mm -hmm. which is ironic because having a disability is the only minority group that you could join tomorrow, that you could join in a heartbeat. Yeah, that's true. The reality, the frank reality, is we could all become disabled in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And um, that's just um, a, a reality of life that, that we should always you know, keep in mind. And keep in mind that you know, for any of us, our, our life circumstances may change uh, in a heartbeat. I have a friend um, who was an avid surfer, and when he was 16, um, he um, became paralyzed surfing. Mm. And he um, um, became a wheelchair user from that point forward. Went on to live an incredible life, become a broadcaster. Uh, he's now a school board member, a uh, teacher, an educator. He's, he has lived an incredible, incredible life. Um, but certainly, as he will tell you, it wasn't a life that he envisioned. Sure. His life changed in a heartbeat. That could happen to any of us. And so it's important for people to, to bear that in mind. And so I always... Uh, try to make sure that they know that uh, they should include disability in any sort of decision making as well. And then also too, just with the times that we live in, um, I've become a little more vocal as well about immigrant rights mm. um, because I think it's a narrative that needs to be told. Uh, I, I would prefer that people recognize that uh, someone can come uh, from the from another country, uh, and even someone like myself, um, the the medical and student visa that I was on uh, as a kid uh, expired for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. So for about a year while I was in high school, I was an undocumented student, mm -hmm. and eventually I was able to get everything worked out and eventually become a citizen of the U.S. Uh, but it was a pretty scary time, and recognizing that um, people aren't necessarily as understanding as I feel they, they need to be uh, towards immigrants and immigrant rights, that's become a, a major part of my activism as well. So there's always an element to it. There's always something uh, 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 to be able to be vocal about because there's always going to be a need to educate and always be a need uh, to show people that they can't live in fear, that they need to be as uh, empathetic as possible and hear all sides. I think that's a really interesting perspective, especially talking about how it's the only minority <coughs> class that tomorrow you could anybody could be um, part of. Sure. But I guess I, I, just a curiosity question in, in all your experiences. I feel like you've, you've probably motivated and talked to and reached out to a lot of able-bodied people and inspired them, or you've had them ask questions and advice. Is do you feel like, I mean, your level of motivation and accomplishments, is it speaks for itself. Do you feel like... Um, leave out the abled body, the disabled people, are they as like, I, I, I feel like what comes with it is the natural um, frustration, maybe the, the counting yourself out, the, the feelings that I'm sure like, you know, aren't, aren't foreign, but you don't exude that at all. Is, is, there, is there a part of that class that like, are they as, as passionate as you, you know, or, or, or are they very, um, I don't want to say accepting of it and, and 
uh, is, is it a battle that you're fighting with, they're fighting with you? Is what I guess I'm asking. Sure. Like any group, you have a far range. I have met uh, people with disabilities that are not only as motivated as I am, but even even more motivated. Sure. Uh, because I've seen them take on um, surfing and skiing and um, doing all sorts of adaptive adaptive uh, activities uh, that even I haven't tried yet. Mm -hmm. uh, not that I haven't wanted to try, but I, I just think they were more motivated to try first. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've seen and met some extremely, extremely motivated people. And then I've met those that um, are very discouraged mm -hmm. and don't feel like they have uh, too many options or too many choices in life. And so they, they don't really come from a place um, of being highly energized and, 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 and highly motivated. But if you think about it, that's just the same as any group. Yeah, any Any group in any peer group that you know, you're gonna have a wide range of friends that some are extremely motivated and some are just not. And you have to kind of find a way to operate within both worlds and, and remain as motivated yourself as you can. <clears throat> the other aspect too, that really has become um, a fairly new thing for me. Um, you know, you had asked about kind of my, my, uh, my themes and, and how my books have evolved. As I've evolved as a writer and as a thinker, and as, as I've also been more uh, open about the things um, that, I, that I've written about, um, one very important issue when it comes to the disability community that is really kind of coming to the forefront now um, is that there tends to be a pretty he heavy propensity uh, for anxiety and depression. Mm. And I think that that also mirrors uh, just kind of what we're facing as a country where mental health um, is a um, uh, is a more public topic, uh, I feel, within the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, um, I have begun to recognize uh, where it was something that was impacting my life and, and my psyche. Um, and so a, a book that I just released uh, this past summer uh, called You Got This uh, dealt with how, how even though I've always been extremely motivated and even though I've been able to accomplish a great number of things in my life, as you mentioned, there was also uh, a challenge, an additional challenge sure. that came with that. And that was that there were issues of anxiety and depression that were, that were also building up. And I had to learn how to tackle those as well as I tackled my physical disabilities. Mm -hmm. Again, the core message being you can overcome anything. And I had to learn how to overcome anxiety and depression and really focus on mental health the same way that I did my physical mm -hmm. health. And so I recognize that with people with disabilities, uh, there is a wide range of what people are feeling and thinking and their energy level and their motivation level. Um, and so my active activism is going to continue to be to kind of identify where they're at and keep pushing them forward. Interesting. So if you don't mind, I'm gonna pull this quote that I got. Okay, from looking forward to it. It was very simple, but I don't wanna <laughs> go through it because it was your words. Okay. And it was said during your TEDx and I feel like it's a perfect timing for it because it's everything we're talking about. And I live, I, I swear I live by this and it's actually, it's, it sums up a lot of advice that I give friends who are having challenging times. But you said, don't focus on what you're missing in life, focus on what you have. Yeah. And I feel like timing wise on it, it's perfect for what we're talking about. And not just timing here in the, in the conversation, but timing in 2020 sure. 
is there will never be the the list of things you can complain about that you don't have will is never ending. Yeah, it's never ending. It's so true. And um, <coughs> but in, in, a, in almost the same retrospect is the things that you do have can can be similar. There's a lot more, but if you focus on the other list. Um, Shoot, I feel like that's what leads to depression, to the anxiety, no doubt, to to disappointments, to failures, um, and I and I've been down that road, you know. And I think people are the biggest tendency to focus on those things is when they do lose something, something right. important. Sure. And like this is a conversation I had with someone who like if you lose a significant other, meaning like you broke up, you've you've seen the people who just gro- they might grovel for months and months oh, and yeah. months. Well, I look, I'm like, well, every day when you're waking up, you're thinking about the one thing, and it's a person that you lost. Yeah. But nothing else changed. Everything else you still have. Yeah. You know, or a job, or you lost a promotion, you lost whatever, whatever it is. And when you said that, it stood out because I've been at that point in my life, and 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 we talked about before we turned the cameras on is you focus on the things that you don't have yet, and I feel like that you can put that into a similar similar category. Is I don't have yet, yeah. but I'm not focusing on what I have right here. Right. You know, so it's focusing on the things that like the disadvantages you have, the things you don't have yet, that'll just warp your mind. Yeah. Every day. Without question. And, question. and and I don't remember the context in the in the conversation you were talking about, but I feel like if there's a mission statement, shoot, I, but like everything that you've talked about from childhood on, I feel like that's such a good summary of each day's progression. Yes. So I um, lost my mom last year. Mm. Uh, my mom that was my aunt that really became a second mom to me. Um, and um, that led me to uh, do a lot of thinking and writing about uh, lessons that she taught me and that, uh, that, that my uncle uh, taught me as well. <clears throat> and and it, it, it occurred to me that the most important thing that they instilled in me, um, probably from when I was four years old, was you need to focus on what you have and not on what you're missing. Because they knew that uh, at some point, I was going to reach a level of consciousness just as a boy mm-hmm. that I was going to wake up and realize, um, hey, these disability challenges aren't going away. Mm-hmm. Every single day I'm going to wake up and not have my arms. Mm-hmm. Every single day I'm going to wake up and be missing one of my legs. Do I think about that and dwell on that? Or do I think about, but you know what? I have two prosthetic arms mm-hmm. that are going to allow me to write and pick up things and eat and grab things and do every single thing I need to do. And I have a prosthetic leg that as soon as I put that on, I can run, I can walk, I can skip, I can do all these things. Um, what are you going to focus on? Are you going to focus on what you're missing or are you going to focus on what you have? And that ended up being a critical theme throughout my life in countless, countless ways. Because as you mentioned, all of us, all of us have times in our life where we lose something Mm -hmm. or where we recognize that there is something that we want, but just do not have. Mm -hmm. It has become especially uh, accelerated uh, in the age of social media where uh, the whole point is to show people what you have. Mm-hmm. And a byproduct of that is people watch your Facebook status or your Instagram story and they say to themselves, well, gosh, that person has that, but I don't. 
Mm-hmm. I wish I had that. And it ends up leaving a lot of people feeling sad and unfulfilled. And it's so critical to kind of go back to that core value of, are you going to focus on what you have or are you going to focus on what you're missing? It's also extremely important when it comes to just the overall mindset for achievement. Mm-hmm. A lot of people can talk themselves out of going after something they want in life, that job, that promotion, asking that person out. They can they can talk themselves out of it by saying, well, I'm not this and I'm not that sure. and I'm not this. Instead of saying, but I am this mm-hmm. and I have that mm-hmm. and I am capable of doing this. And eventually you get to the point where you recognize my haves are far greater than my have nots or what I'm missing. Mm-hmm. I keep a gratitude list on my phone uh, that I try to add to uh, at least every couple of days because you're right. The far number of things that we have far exceeds what we're missing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would love to tell you that I am unaffected by thinking about, by not thinking about what I'm missing. Uh, but I'm human like anyone sure. else. And I, I sometimes begin to think about, you know, the challenges of missing something, the challenges of not having either something physically or just something else within life. And when it gets to that point, I go back to that quote and I go back to that belief and I say, okay, I'm really dwelling a lot on what I'm missing. I need to get back to thinking about what I have. And it, it, it gets you back into the proper mindset because it guides you to focus on those things, but it just reminds you that you will always have more than you're missing and you would need to focus on those things in order to move forward. Yeah, and I think it's healthy. It's healthy still to, you, you're not trying to trick, it's not tricking yourself not to think it's about it. It's the truth. It. It, it's just the yeah, honest truth. It's, it's totally healthy and I think for almost any situation someone could be in that's on any unfortunate situation, I think the easiest practice is what you said, and, and, and it's good to see that gratitude is starting to get a better name and acknowledgement. People are, are having gratitude practices, gratitude journals, yeah. and all that. As I say, like even just start with three things. Right. You know, if you're in, if you're down on the dump, start with three <coughs> things, and they could be the most simple. And, and what's so funny is almost every time I write down the three things or however many things, they're always things that are free. Like right. I've, I've written down my dog before. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's my absolutely, dog. Yeah. I, I've written no down. Doubt. I've written down the beach. I'm like. Be, I mean, I have to pay to live here, sure. but I'm like, so everybody's got to pay rent or mortgage right. in some way. Right. I'm like, I have the beach at my disposal every single day. And every time I go there, I feel a few degrees happier, yes. you know? So all those things no that you doubt. write down, typically it's not like my watch or right. my television. Right. Those aren't things that hit the gratitude book. Yeah. So it, it shifts so many other different ways of thinking about things than people realize. When, um, you, when you live in gratitude, it changes your mindset literally from the moment you wake up because... It forces you to say, I'm thankful that my eyes were open today mm-hmm. because clearly not everyone has that gift. Mm-hmm. I'm thankful that I can look out the window and see blue skies. I'm thankful that I have a roof over my head. Mm-hmm. I am thankful for the beautiful San Diego sunrise. And especially, especially in 2020, in the year of COVID, look how many things we didn't realize that we should be thankful for mm-hmm. until they got taken away. Yeah. Uh, the ability to go to restaurants, the ability to go to a movie, the ability to just cluster with your friends human interaction. and have human interaction. Yeah. I guarantee you 99.9% of people 
didn't stop to think about how thankful they were for human interaction prior to COVID because it was just something we just did. Yeah. It was something that we had. And then when it was taken away, all of a sudden it was like, oh man, I miss being able to just hug someone yeah, and see yeah. someone. And then once it's given back, you, you begin to kind of change that mindset of, I will never uh, not be thankful for this ever again. I will never take it for granted. I will always be mindful and thankful of these things. And we really need to be that way about all things. Most definitely. That's great. Man, I'm going to end with the same same sequence we always end with. Okay. And I feel like I'm in for a great answer. <laughs> um, we, always, we always try to wrap things up with, um, you know, if there's anybody listening or watching who is on a similar path to you, but just at the starting line, so to speak. Their younger days, whether it's, you know, getting to college, getting into their first career, getting into whatever that they're aspiring to do, but they're at the starting line. What is yours and your, your experience? And again, we ask everybody this, so it's always great hearing people with the collection of experience we have here. What's your like cliff notes advice for someone who's at the starting line right now? At the starting line of life? My advice for anyone that is really just beginning their journey is to realize two things. Number one, that it is a journey, mm -hmm. that it's not a sprint, that it's not a get from point A to point B uh, uh, goal uh, quickly. Uh, that it will be a journey, meaning uh, very similar to when you go hiking, uh, there's going to be twists and turns. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be, you're going to go in different directions that you didn't really anticipate. And to not uh, fear that, to know that the adventurous part of life is being able to experience twists and turns and know that it's going to help you grow as a person. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing uh, to know is that we're all going to face adversity and all of us, all of us have adversity in our lives. For me, my uh, most visible piece of adversity uh, is very visible. Everyone sees it as soon as they see me. Um, for others, it may be visible, it may not. It, it may be something that no one even has any sort of idea that, that you're going through. But to just know that not only do we all have adversity, but adversity can strengthen you. Adversity mm -hmm. can really build your character. Adversity can really make you a much smarter, tougher, more aware person. So don't fear when challenges come or when adversity comes because it's actually going to be quite good for you. And then finally, to remember to focus on what you have and not on what you're missing. Um, to know that we all uh, have within us uh, the things that we need. Uh, I firmly believe that for anyone starting out, that they need to know that they were born for greatness and built for toughness. Mm -hmm. And if they can remember that um, and remember to just enjoy the journey, they will be uh, extremely fulfilled by it. Man, that was great. That was great. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. I knew it was, was going to be a great talk. <laughs> um, and it led itself. So, um, Thank you for the time. Thank, Thank you for you. sharing the story. Thank you. Um, I'm going to be consuming. Well, we're going to be consuming your books. Awesome. <laughs> um, and yeah, man, really appreciate the time. This is great. Thank you so much. Definitely.